Do you um, remember those times in gym class or recess or neighborhood pickup games when two captains each took turns choosing who they wanted on their team? <laughs> it was dreadful. Do you remember how it felt to be the last one picked? Or perhaps it wasn't you, but you could feel for the one who stood there in this ritual of sorting as the number dwindled from 12 to 4 to 2 people. And perhaps you know how it felt to, to be that one that the two captains argued over who would have to take you. No, 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 you take them. No, no, you take them. And you're sitting there going, I'm right here. I can hear you. The ritual of sorting is as old as the playground pickup game for placing people in a pecking order is nothing new. We sort people out. We sort people out according to race or to politics or gender or, or education. We sort people out according to physical appearances or, or positions. We sort people out according to titles and, and status and net worth and labels that society places on people. We as humans get so caught up on the externals. And sadly... It happens in the church. The kid in youth group who is shunned, the one who's never included because he or she's a, a little odd or quirky, the ones who, who just make us a little uncomfortable are just some of the ways we do this whole sorting thing. And God, through Pastor James, pulls no punches in addressing this very issue in the church in his day, and it speaks to our day as well. So, if you're not there, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James. The letter of James is near the back of your Bibles. Now, whose idea was it to go through the book of James? <laughs> There's nothing easy about this book. I mean, it isn't difficult to understand. It's just a, an uncomfortable book. Just over the last two weeks, we've been confronted with the need to not only listen to God's Word, but do what it says. According to James, true faith is a faith in action. I heard it said that faith is like calories. You can't see them, but you can always see their results. Not bad. And we're going to see that theme throughout James. Now, looking at the section in James today in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, there really is a continuation of being doers of the Word that we've just been talking about. We, we should see the results of putting God's Word into practice and how we treat people. And so, if you're there in your Bibles, we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 that Cindy read for us earlier. But I want to back up first to the last two verses back in chapter 1. So, go to back there to chapter 1, last two verses. It's where we left off last week, and, and since there are no chapter breaks when this letter was written, I believe James's mind is still on not just doing, but doing right. All right, James chapter 1, verse 26. It says, if anyone considers himself religious, he does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. 
Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, James here is not talk, taking issue uh, with religion per se, but an empty religion of doing things that are for show only. See, we can play church. We can, we can do the rituals. We can do those externals that might impress other people. And so, in so doing, we can kid ourselves. Now, we ended last week with the thought to not only do, but do right. Well, he picks that up here. We see it this morning, James uh, chapter 2, verse 8, kind of in the middle of our whole section here, James chapter 2, verse 8. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. See, doers of the word do right by treating others right. Doers of the word do right by treating others right. That's really our, our, our main thought this morning. And, and a very real danger for all of us is treating people in different ways according to their outward appearance. It's the danger of favoritism. Now, how many sermons have you heard on favoritism? I'd probably count it on one hand. But James forces us to address it. And that's where James goes next. So look with me at James chapter 2. Now, and I really want to surface up front what I believe is the core issue. The core problem, I believe, is this. We give preferential treatment to those who benefit us the most. We give preferential treatment to those who benefit us the most. Now, just think on this and, and ask yourself, is that true? Let's see if it sticks, okay? You just kind of think on that. But the first heading this morning is favoritism forbidden. Favoritism forbidden. All right, chapter 2, uh, verse 1. My brothers, as believers, notice he isn't addressing those outside the church. He's, he's speaking to the Christian community. My brothers, as believers, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to pause there for a moment to focus and zero in on the description here of Jesus. Because the tendency might be to pass too quickly over those opening words, that, that, that opening phrase there, that, that are critical, I believe, to what James is going to say next. Notice the description of Jesus. What's it say? He is our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's, the phrase really is that it's kind of hard to translate. But I believe the best way to understand that phrase is that the Lord of us, Jesus Christ of the glory. Now, the ESV almost says it that way. I think they got it right. The Lord of us, Jesus Christ of the glory. In other words, think about Jesus in relationship to glory. Jesus had all the riches in heaven. And then Philippians chapter 2 tells us that who Jesus, now Jesus, who being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Jesus lowered himself in poverty and humility. Jesus set aside the glory, which was his due, to come down to this fallen, messy, broken world 
to give up his life for us. This Jesus of the glory was born in an obscure village, rode on a donkey, washed his disciples' feet, willingly took the punishment of our sin uh, for us through an excruciating death on the cross. Jesus came down. Jesus stooped to love. Jesus stopped for the woman with the past. Jesus stopped to listen to the cries of the, of the lame and, and, and the blind. Jesus stopped to touch the outcasts of the society. Jesus was no respecter of persons. Now, it's with that backdrop, okay? We needed to spend time on this because with that backdrop, that awareness, James then says, don't show favoritism. And if we're given to favoritism, we need a good dose of of Philippians chapter 2. Because when we consider this Jesus of the glory, who, who had it all, did not operate on the basis of what is external. How can we justify judging other people on the basis of superficial, external, outward appearances? And James says, don't show favoritism. The sense really is stop showing favoritism. In other words, favoritism is actually happening in the early church, and they need to stop. That's what he's saying. Now, the word favoritism, by the way, uh, literally means receiving of the face. Receiving of the face. It's It's to see the face, the outward appearance, and you evaluate that person on what you see on the outside. And God, through James, says, don't do it. Stop showing favoritism. The instruction's clear, right? For favoritism is forbidden. But James now moves from the instruction to an illustration. It's an illustration of rich man, poor man. And my second heading is case in point. He gives a case in point now. I I just said don't do it now. No, here's a case in point. Verse uh, 2. We're moving at quite a clip here, as you can see. Verse 2, suppose a man comes into your meeting or gathering wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, sit on the floor by my seat. Have you not discriminated or made distinctions, is the word, among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And so... Visitor number one comes to the meeting, comes to the gathering. The word really is synagogue. It's one reason I believe James was written so early, because synagogues were still around. And so, so he's saying this visitor one comes to this gathering, and he's wearing a gold ring. More likely, really, it's several rings. Because in that day, you, you, you would show off your wealth by the number of rings you wore on your hand. You carried your wealth with you. And so visitor number one is dressed in fine, shining clothes, meaning expensively robed. Visitor number one was a prominent person in society. Okay, visitor number two comes in, dirty, ragged, smelly, unstylish clothes. Visitor number two obviously was very poor. Visitor number two was not an influential person in society. 
And so two visitors walk in, both looking for seats, and the usher must make a quick decision. Now, on that day, the best seats in the house were the benches at the front. <laughs> Just like today, we all fight for that front row. Well, in our scenario, one person receives royal treatment and the other the cold shoulder. The nearsighted usher who belongs to the Church of Immaculate Perception <laughs> says to the rich man, oh, we're so glad to see you here today. Come on down to the front, to the very best seats. And the usher walks away and he says under his breath, we can hardly wait to pass the offering plate today. And the usher, after seating the rich man, he gets to the back, and there's the poor man still standing there. I mean, have you ever felt invisible? I mean, you're at a restaurant, and waitress just keeps going by. You go, do you see me? Am I visible? invisible? Maybe you're in a crowded event, and no one sees you. That was this poor man. He is the kid picked last. The usher looks at him, and he thinks, what's he going to contribute to our ministry? I mean, is this the kind of guy we really want here attending every single week? He receives his face. He makes his evaluation based on what he saw on the outside. And he says, you stand over there. And well, if you can't stand over there, just sit on the floor. In other words, just get out of the way. Will you get out of the way? And we quickly kind of look at that and we just shake our heads and we go, what blatant favoritism. And that's pretty obvious. I mean, what kind of church would allow such rude ushers to act this way? Well, the story is told of a woman who lived on the other side of the track, so to speak. She had nothing. She was very rough around the edge, and she wanted to join this fashionable church. And so she talked to the pastor of that church about joining, and, and he suggested she just go home and think about it for a week. Well, at the end of the week, she comes back and again asks the pastor if she could join the church. And he said, no, let's not be hasty here. Go home this week, read your Bible every day, and then come back and let's see if you still want to join. He's really, he's really putting her off. Well, the next week, she comes back, still wanting to join. And the pastor says, okay, I have one more suggestion. Go home this week and pray about this, and then let's talk about it next week. Well, she never came back. Six months later, the pastor ran into her in the store, and he asked her what happened to her. And the woman replied, he said, you know, I did what you asked me to do. I went home, and I prayed every single day. And one day as I was praying, it was as if the Lord spoke to me. I mean, he spoke into my heart, and the Lord said, don't worry about getting into that church. I've been trying to get into it myself for the last 20 years. <laughs> Yeah, ouch. See, God's not in a church. He's not in followers of him who show favoritism. The church had a sign up front, and it said, Jesus only. Two words, Jesus only. Well, one night, a storm came through, and it blew out the first three letters and left us only. Too many Christians have this us for and no more mentality. If you're not like us, you stand over there. Just get out of the way. 
In his autobiography, Mahatma Gandhi wrote that during his student days, he read the gospel seriously. He considered converting to Christianity. He believed that in Jesus, he could find the solution to the caste system that was dividing the people of India. And so the story goes that one Sunday, Gandhi decided to attend services at a nearby church and, and, he, and talk to the minister about becoming a Christian. And when he entered the sanctuary, however, the usher refused to give him a seat and suggested that he go worship with his own people. Gandhi left the church and never returned. He said, if Christians have caste differences also, he said, I might as well remain a Hindu. And years later, he was quoted as saying, I like the New Testament, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. If Jesus walked into our service today wearing a tunic of a Middle Eastern Jew, would we welcome him? Now, let me speak briefly to what this is not saying Because James is not reducing everything and everyone to a common level, you know, the everyone wins mentality. That's not what, equality does not mean sameness. I don't know where we ever got that idea. James is not saying we're to never give preferential treatment. We should give proper respect to those to whom respect is due. For example, An elderly person should be given preferential treatment if there's only one seat left in some room, a bus, a train, whatever it is. A younger person should give up his seat for someone older. Servicemen and servicewomen should be shown respect and honor. Signs of respect are lost today. Yet the Bible speaks to honoring the king, honoring the aged, Spiritual leaders, those who teach. So, James is not speaking to no preferential treatment ever. But he is speaking to treating people unfairly because of superficial prejudices. See, the problem is we become so fixated on outward appearances that we show favoritism. And when we treat someone in a disparaging manner simply because of of, of social or or economic status or, or race or political affiliations or background or looks, we are making distinctions that are foreign to the faith. You might go, prejudice? Favoritism? Who? Me? Well, before you quickly dismiss any prejudice of your own, let me give you a definition of prejudice. Prejudice is a preconceived preference or idea. It's an adverse, meaning a negative judgment or opinion formed beforehand or without knowledge or examination of the facts. So before you say prejudice who me, I challenge you to consider perceptions and attitudes and labels and preconceived preferences and and opinions that are formed without having all the information. Guilty is charged. It's been said prejudice is the glass through which most things are seen and judged. I mean, let's be honest, we do have biases. We have formed opinions. 
We have unacceptable attitudes that get in the way of unity and evangelism. I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, consider when you have looked down on someone because of, of just too many offensive habits or he's not your type or because of his financial status or, or body piercings or length of hair or a certain race or ethnic group. Think of the ones you've written off as candidates to receive the gospel. Think about the ones you have judged by outward appearance. Oh, he shouldn't wear that to church. What's with all those tattoos? I wonder how much he paid for that car. They're homeschoolers. <laughs> or they go to a public school. Or she didn't finish high school. Or didn't she wear that outfit last week? Husband and wife were traveling home from church when the woman asked her husband, say, did you notice the hat Mrs. Jones had on this morning? The husband answered, no, honestly, I, I, I really didn't notice. And she continued, well, did you notice Mrs. Smith's new dress? It was hideous. He said, no, no, I, I, I really didn't notice. She went on, did you notice what our young people had on? He said, no, no, I, I really didn't notice. Exasperated, the wife replied, well, what good does it for you to go to church? You never get anything out of it. <laughs> well, hopefully you get a little more out of it this morning that goes to the core of our prejudices. What is your case in point? Might not be this. What assumptions have you made about someone that's affecting how you relate to him or her? All right, third heading, compelling reasons. Compelling reasons that partiality is unfitting for the church. Here's some compelling reasons that partiality is unfitting for the church. James moves from instruction to illustration, now to application. And he gives three reasons as to why playing favorites is wrong, why partiality is unfitting for the church. Reason number one he gives is God shows no partiality, so neither should his followers. God shows no partiality, so neither should his followers. It's a theological reason. Verse 5 says, Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor, now get this, in the eyes of the world, to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Again, this is not saying that only the poor are saved. I mean, generally, maybe that's true, but not always. I mean, Job... Abraham, Joseph, Arimathea, Zacchaeus, Levi, all were rich and all were true followers of the Lord. So don't miss the point on this. The point, I believe, is he's saying is we minimize our influence when we neglect certain people because of our snap judgments. In doing so, we might just miss out on reaching them for Christ. God's no respecter of person, so neither should we. And then in verses 6 and 7, James asked two more questions. In doing so, he provides them with a second reason why favoritism is unfitting for Christians. Reason number two is showing partiality to the rich makes no sense. Showing partiality to the rich makes no sense at all. It is illogical. So he gives a theological reason, now he gives a logical reason. He says in verse 6, he asks this question, is not the rich who are exploiting you? 
Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Now again, this is not always true. It's stated for effect. Now contextually, we don't really know all that's going on here when he asks this question, but when we see time and time again that those in positions of power, those, those who have wealth, those in places of influence, and how they treat in a disparaging way those who can't defend themselves, why in the world are we giving them preferential treatment? That's James's point of application. It's illogical. And he, show, he asks another question to show how illogical it is, to show partiality. Verse 7, I love how James comes at this. He says, are they the rich, not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? Now we've already seen in James that these Jewish believers were being oppressed because they were Jews, one, and they were Christians, two, lose-lose. And this persecution, this oppression was felt on many levels. They were prevented uh, from buying and selling in the marketplace, so their faith cost them financially. It cost them their reputation because they were being slandered and abused for their faith. And a lot of it was coming from the wealthy. It makes zero sense, James argues, to favor the rich who were their enemies over the poor who shared similar circumstances. So James gives us a theological reason, he gives us a logical reason, and now he gives them one other reason why favoritism is unfitting for the church. Reason number three is favoritism disregards the royal law of love. Favoritism disregards or defies the royal law of love. This really just nails it down tight. Because when we come to verses 8 through 11, the strength of James' application really hits home. The issue of playing favorites gets quite serious because he places the issue of favoritism side by side with breaking the law. And we might not always think of it that way. And so he says in verse 8, look at me at verse 8, if you keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So he says, even if you've never murdered anyone, hopefully that's everyone in the room, even if you, you, you didn't commit adultery, even if you didn't, didn't do any of those big sins that make your list, you're condemned. Even if favoritism, and it's not, but even if favoritism is the only sin I committed, it shatters the entire law of God, and I am condemned to hell forever. I don't like that one. See, the law, someone says, has been likened to a seamless garment which, when ripped in one place, destroys the whole garment. We might get just a little self-righteous. We see someone else break God's law, yet we break it every time we show favoritism when we judge others on outward appearances. Because we're defying the royal law of love. So in what way have you been practicing the ritual of sorting? What kind of people 
are hard for you to love because you just can't get past what your eyes see. I mean, you, do, do you, do I treat people differently because of a title or a position or education or background or profession or some affiliation? Do we judge by what we see without having all the information? In the movie Shrek, Shrek and the donkey are sitting under the stars talking. And donkey asks Shrek why he wants to keep everyone out of his life. And Shrek says that everyone judges him before they even get to know him. Hmm. Is it a big deal? Well, when prejudice and favoritism sneaks into our lives, we are defying the royal law of love. Because doers of the word do right by treating others right. All right, last heading this morning is have mercy or show mercy. Verse 12, look at me at verse 12. It says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Now, there's a lot here in verses 12 through 13. I'm going to try and boil it down and put it on bottom shelf for us. But you, if you want to dig in more, you're just going to have to do that work on your own here. But he says, verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Now, I think James, as he often does, he has his brother Jesus' words on his mind as he writes this. For Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, but I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. Kind of makes me want to be silent the rest of the day. <laughs> but not only my careless words will be judged, but other places we see our deeds or lack thereof will be judged. And I go, I'm doomed. You're doomed. We're all doomed. We're doomed because we're all lawbreakers. Even if I was able to keep all but one of the commandments, I am still doomed for I am a lawbreaker. Wow. Seriously? Now, here's the gospel. Verse 13 says it plainly. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Praise God for his mercy. Now, James is not saying we show mercy in order to receive God's mercy. I mean, you're going to have to work that one out a little bit, but I really think he's getting at here. We show mercy because we receive mercy from God. You and I, I mean, we've got to be honest here. You and I deserve punishment for every word and deed, but mercy, not getting what we deserve, triumphs, literally boasts over judgment. Now, it's here that I, that I, that I must pause. And just make sure you understand this part for yourself and personalize it to your life. Because if you've not received God's mercy, you need to come to the cross this morning. You need to cry out to God. Yes, I need your mercy. I need your grace to cover over my sins. I, I, I need, I need that, that for you to just come into my life and with your forgiveness, take away all that sin because I stand condemned before you as a lawbreaker. I am guilty and I can only expect judgment from you, Lord, if you don't come into my life. That's the prayer we need to have. 
And if you haven't done that, I'd love to walk you through that because that's where you need to start. None of this other stuff's going to make sense if you don't have that. Have you embraced the gospel? For those who trust in Jesus for salvation, escape divine judgment. We are no longer judged by our actions. We are judged on the basis of Christ's sacrifice and righteousness. The law that gives freedom, that's the good news of Jesus Christ that saves us from judgment and eternal punishment. Are you on the receiving end of his mercy? James says, if so, live like it. Live like one who's been shown mercy because God has not given us what we deserve because of his abundant mercy. How dare we judge others on what we see on the outside? Faith in action is merciful to others. And those who have been shown mercy, we don't push away. We don't avoid the disenfranchised. We don't avoid the broken, the poor, those different from us and say, just, just get out of the way. Doers of the word do right by treating others right. So how is God calling you, calling me to show mercy instead of partiality? Brendan Manning said this. He said, the way we are with each other is the truest test of our faith. So, how you and I respond to that person who's different from us and we treat the person who's unlovely on the outside says something about what we believe. It was the final class for the students preparing for ministry at the seminary they were attending. They had made their way through three grueling years, studying the biblical languages, learning about church practice, working their way through the principles of leadership, diving into all the finer points of theology, and they had one more final exam to take before graduating and moving on to some full-time ministry. They all sat down to take this final exam. The professor handed the students their exam, and, and all seemed to be going smoothly until they came to the final question on the test. It was, a, it was a peculiar question. The question was, what is the woman's name who cleans this building every afternoon? Huh. I mean, she was a happy woman, but quiet. She was unattractive. She smelled she wore shabby clothes. She pushed her cleaning cart from room to room every afternoon. Everyone saw her, but no one knew anything about her. What's the woman's name who cleans this building afternoon? It's every afternoon. The students were beside themselves, and finally one frustrated student took his exam and brought it to the professor with his last question on the exam still blank, and he says, is this a joke? He asked the professor, pointing to that question. What does this have to do with the rest of material? The professor stood up and he said, Doris! Doris, her name is Doris. And he said to the students, when you leave here, you're going straight into the ministry of a hundred people just like her. And until you can put your clever theology into a language she can understand, until you can stop for people like Doris, you have nothing to say. 
What are some preconceived ideas that we have of others that are getting in the way of moving toward them and loving involvement? Let's take a hard look, church, at how preferential treatment is given to those who benefit us the most. Does it stick? Let's be honest about the prejudices in our own heart. Let's pray. No doubt, there, this church is, is, is like me and going through this and then preaching it, it. This is all uncomfortable. This is very uncomfortable. And yet you brought us face to face with the truth of your word. The mirror exposes prejudices and partiality and favoritism in our own heart, and I pray, God, we see it. Pray, God, we see it. And apply what we need to our own lives around this as we, as we come around your table this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.